Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. It's time for another trip to Rome to continue the saga of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. This time, Rome is finally going to lose its title of Republic and go full empire as we cover the rise of the first emperor, Caesar Augustus. We've now had several episodes with Augustus playing a part, albeit calling him by his childhood name Octavian. We've also extensively covered the end of the Roman Republic era under Julius Caesar with the first triumvirate and Augustus with the second triumvirate. But it's time for our saga to enter the Imperial Age, where Rome will stay for the next several centuries. However, Octavian defeating Mark Antony did not create an empire. We're dealing with the most powerful nation in the Western world, a nation that was very anti-monarchy. So how exactly will Augustus convince them to go full empire? Tune in to find out. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Rome of the early 1st century BCE in The Mighty Imperator Rex. <laughs> a lot in past episodes when it comes to the politics of Rome. It had once been a monarchy under a series of kings, possibly dating back to the founding of the city proper under Romulus, if any of that story is true. After living under the rule of several tyrants, the people of Rome allegedly toppled the monarchy and set up the senate to give more power to the people of Rome. This was the beginning of the Republic of Rome, usually dated to be around 509 BCE. But at this point in time, only members of the patricians, aka the rich families of Rome, could hold a position on the senate. But the government still needed a leader, or in Rome's case, leaders. Instead of one man ruling the nation, they chose to have two consuls who would rule for one year. This system lasted for around 15 years until the plebeians, aka all the free citizens in Rome who were not members of the patricians, revolted against the patrician-controlled senate in order to gain their own form of representation. Thanks to that revolt, the Council of Plebes was created in order to give a voice to the middle and lower classes. Over the years and centuries, more political councils and positions were created that ultimately decreased any single person's power within the republic. The only time one person was truly allowed to have any absolute control was in times of dire need, mostly war but sometimes general political upheaval or natural events such as droughts and famines. During these times, Rome would choose someone as dictator, which was a temporary position of absolute power that would be relinquished after the troubled times had passed. This system worked for centuries until the first triumvirate formed. Though they were never a recognized political group and only two of them at a time could hold power as consuls, these three men were essentially the ones who decided the laws of Rome. That was until Julius Caesar became too powerful and popular. Then the three-man system collapsed and almost became a monarchy until several conspirators had the thought of, oh dang, Caesar could become a king at this rate. One six-semper Tyrannus later and Caesar is dead. Things ever so briefly returned to normal until the second triumvirate formed from Caesar's most loyal followers. This group was recognized as a political union and had far more power than they should have had. Once again, things collapsed. 
one war with Cleopatra later, and the only member of the second triumvirate with power remaining was a young man going by the Latin title Divi Julii Filius, meaning son of the deified Julius, referring to the fact that Julius Caesar had come to be recognized as a god, and this man was his adopted son. Now that we've recapped everything up until now, it's time for the reign of Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus to begin. Okay, okay, before we get to Octavian going full Imperator Caesar, the name he would choose to go by around the time the Second Triumvirate was starting to fall apart, I want to cover some personal details about Octavian we didn't have time to discuss during the Second Triumvirate story. Also, I'll refer to him as Octavian for now until we actually get to the point in history where he started going by Augustus. Octavian was married a grand total of three times before he became emperor. His first wife was Claudia, the stepdaughter of Mark Antony. They were married in order to achieve a tighter political union between Octavian and his fellow triumvir. Well, things didn't go very well on that front because Claudia's mother, Mark Antony's third wife Fulvia, decided that she was going to wage a civil war in order to give her husband more power. After Octavian won that civil war in 40 BCE, he divorced Claudia. Not much else is really known about their marriage. After his divorce to Claudia, Octavian set his eyes on a woman named Scribonia. She was related through the marriage of her sister or other female relative to a man named Sextus Pompey. He was the son of Pompey the Great, a member of the first triumvirate who would go on to become Julius Caesar's biggest rival and opponent. During the early years of the Second Triumvirate, Sextus had been a thorn in the side of the group because he wished to uphold the views of his father, aka the destruction of the pro-Caesar faction. But around 40 BCE, Pompey and the Second Triumvirate were beginning to warm up to each other, more or less. Just one problem. Scribonia is married. Well, that's not actually a problem for a member of the Second Triumvirate because Octavian simply orders the couple to get divorced. And they do. So Octavian marries Scribonia, and they eventually have a daughter together named Julia. She would be Octavian's only biological child. And guess what happens next? And by next, I mean on the same day Scribonia gives birth to Julia. Octavian decides to divorce his second wife. But despite the divorce, Scribonia would continue to call herself the wife of Caesar for the rest of her years. But let's move on to the woman whom Octavian divorced Scribonia for, Livia Drusilla. Just like with Scribonia, Octavian either convinced or forced Livia's husband Tiberius Claudius Nero, who is not any of the three emperors who we commonly call those names, to divorce his wife. By this point, Livia and Tiberius had one son together, the future emperor Tiberius. Livia was also pregnant with her second son, Nero Claudius Drusus, aka Drusus the Elder. Though it's believed that Octavian married Livia out of love, it also helped that she already had a son and was pregnant with another, which Octavian hoped was an omen that she could give him a natural-born male heir. Livia was Octavian's wife throughout the end of the Second Triumvirate, including the future emperor's civil war with Mark Antony. When Octavian will eventually become emperor, she will be his empress and take on the name Livia Augusta. 
pick up in the aftermath of the final Roman Civil War, the final conflict between Octavian and Mark Antony that resulted in the deaths of Mark Antony, Cleopatra, and her son Caesarion. Strangely enough, Octavian finds himself almost in the exact same position his adopted father found himself in during his rise to power over a decade earlier. Rome was reeling from socio-political upheaval and was in need of a guiding hand. However, unlike Julius Caesar, Octavian did not become dictator of Rome. Even though the Second Triumvirate had not been a legal organization for a couple years by this point, all eyes were still on Octavian, hoping that the young man would choose to continue being a leader for the Republic. This is sounding pretty close to the situation with Julius Caesar, except for a couple key differences. One, even though Caesar had never openly said he wanted to be a monarch, it was pretty obvious he wanted to be something akin to a king. Octavian, on the other hand, made absolutely no moves that immediately screamed monarchy. In fact, he made a play at trying to give all his powers back to the Senate, which leads into difference number two. There was obviously a plot in place to kill Julius Caesar, many members of said plot being part of the Senate. But no one seemed to want to kill Octavian. In fact, the Senate very much wanted him to maintain the power he already had. Octavian instead chose to go with the long play in order to fulfill his desires for power. When he finally returned to Rome after conquering Egypt, Octavian and his close ally and friend Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa were elected as consuls for the year 28 BCE. And let me just jump ship for a second to talk about Agrippa. I haven't mentioned him yet in relation to Octavian, but Agrippa was a very key figure in Octavian's camp during the time of the Second Triumvirate. He was a powerful military commander who helped oversee conflicts in Gaul, led battles against Sextus Pompey, and was the leading naval commander at the War of Actium. Also, in 29 BCE, Agrippa created a standard of Roman measurement that would help keep marching order for the legions. This unit of measurement is called the Roman foot, its distance based on the length of Agrippa's foot. Agrippa's foot length is actually very close to the modern day foot measurement, being 11.6 inches instead of 12, which, yeah, humongous feet, but whatever. Now, back to Octavian. In addition to becoming consul, the Senate also granted Octavian a position of overseeing the regulation of the Republic for the next decade. Now, it's important to note that this was not him being proclaimed dictator for 10 years. Instead, Octavian was given the title Princeps, which translates to first in the order, but in Octavian's case is usually given the meaning of first among the citizens. Also, Princeps is where we get the modern English words prince and princess. He was again elected consul alongside Agrippa for the year 27 BCE. It was also around this time that Octavian was given a cognomen meaning majestic and venerable. This new name was actually more of a show of religious power than political power. Apparently, Octavian originally wanted to go by Romulus, but ancient Roman PR would have told him that this would invoke the ideas of kings and monarchies. So he took his new name in stride. It was finally time for the man to become Augustus. Despite being the most powerful man in Rome, Augustus was not quite emperor just yet. 
His power over the provinces did not actually extend to every province in the Republic. The Senate controlled the African provinces, except for Egypt, which was under Augustus' control, as well as Macedonia and Illyria, a province located along the eastern coast of the Adriatic Sea. The African provinces were reliable sources of grain for the Republic, and the other two provinces were strong military centers. Through this division of power, Rome could still pretend that it was a full republic. But things were not actually very republican in Rome. Augustus continued to be elected as consul through the year 23 BCE. As princeps, Augustus had a very prominent say in who would be his co-consul. Also, by taking up one of the two seats as leader of the Senate, Augustus ostensibly lowered the chance for other politicians to become major players within his new Roman world. And despite all of this seemingly anti-republicanism going on with Augustus, we're still not in full imperial territory yet. Historians like to refer to this era of Rome as a principate, and it will last through many early emperors. During this time, Rome had a single leader, in this case Augustus, but still held onto many republican ideals, such as the Senate still having quite a bit of power. But things began to change in the spring of 23 BCE when Augustus was struck by a sudden illness that many thought would surely be his end of days. Fearing for his own demise, Augustus began to put plans in motion. First, he gave up his seat as consul, which was assigned to many senators that Augustus was not in fact hoping to become king. Second, he gave all of his official documents to his co-consul, and remember that Augustus was basically the sole authority on who could sit next to him as co-consul on the Senate. Third, and perhaps most important for this exact moment, Augustus gave his signet ring, the sign of his official power as imperator and princeps, to Agrippa. This transfer to his ally was a clear sign that Augustus was choosing the military leader to be his successor in the event of his death, especially to the legions under Augustus' command. The princeps' legions far outnumbered those controlled by the senate, so Augustus needed those soldiers to remain loyal to his cause. Everything was set for the imperator Caesar Augustus' passing. The principate would live on. But then something kind of funny happened. Augustus' illness subsided, meaning that he had to start figuring out how to get all of that lost power back. Before we get further into Augustus' story, let's check in on his allies, namely Agrippa and Livia. As of right now, Marcus Agrippa is perhaps the second most powerful person in the Principate. Obviously, he had seemingly been chosen as Augustus' heir in the event that the leader of Rome died. But that wasn't always the case, which did lead to a bit of friction between the two men. Supposedly, Augustus' original choice for his heir was his sister Octavia's son, Marcus Claudius Marcellus, who was also married to Julia, Augustus' daughter. This would have made sense than the usual idea of imperial succession since Augustus' nephew was his closest male relative. However, his nephew did not seem to live up to Augustus' hopes in terms of political and military prestige. It was around this time that Augustus put Agrippa in charge of several provinces in the eastern half of the Principate. 
many people during the time very much thought that the Princeps had sent Agrippa into exile, especially considering that the military commander didn't even end up in Syria, where he sent his generals, but instead settled on the island of Lesbos, which is part of Greece but just off the coast of Turkey. It's usually considered now that Agrippa was sent further east as a contingency for plans that were cooking deep in Augustus's mind. We'll get into those later, but it's thought that Agrippa's control out east was to act as a military control of the region in case Augustus's plans failed. Obviously, Agrippa would come back to Rome once Augustus announced that Agrippa would essentially become his heir. It was also around this time that Marcus Claudius Marcellus passed away. Let's now talk about Livia. I'm definitely planning on covering her more in a future Julio-Claudian episode, especially her role later in life, but it's okay now to say that history doesn't generally look too favorably on Lady Augusta. She was a very independent woman, which Augustus himself gladly encouraged. She was able to control her own political and financial projects that stretched across the Principate. She controlled mines in Gaul, papyrus fields in Egypt, and estates out east in Judea. She also had her own political circle that she fostered in order to introduce new powerful elites into Augustus's system. Some of Livia's protégés would go on to become grandparents of future Roman emperors. It should also be noted, in a sad bit of irony, that Livia and Augustus never actually had any children together, despite the fact that Augustus was certain Livia would be able to give him a natural-born son. She was pregnant once with Augustus's child, but she ended up miscarrying. Despite all that, though, the couple would remain married for decades. But it's not her independence or inability to produce an heir that painted Livia in a bad light. If it had been the latter, that would be absolutely abhorrent. No, Livia, at least among earlier historians, was thought to be a conniving woman who was eager to control the line of succession in the early days of the Julio-Claudian era. Remember how Augustus's nephew died? Well, he fell ill a little after Augustus came down with his terrible illness. It was thought that Livia did not want Marcus Claudius Marcellus as her husband's heir, so she poisoned him. Now, there's no factual basis for that story, it's told just to perpetuate the idea that Livia was fully in control of who would actually succeed Augustus. At this point in time, Livia and Agrippa were Augustus's fiercest allies, which would only help them out further, because the Princeps was about to make some really big moves. Now without the power of consul, Augustus came to the Senate with a compromise to retain his power as princeps. He would no longer run for consul every year, and saying he ran for consul is kind of a joke because it was impossible for him not to be elected. In place of the power of consul, Augustus received the powers of a tribune. While consul was technically the more powerful position in terms of hierarchy, tribunal powers definitely were not a step down. With the powers of a tribune, Augustus was allowed to do the following. 1. Create laws and bring them before the Senate. 2. The ability to speak first at any Senate gathering. 3. The right to veto any Senate motions. 4. The power of a magistrate to force citizens to obey his orders. and 5. The right to intervene in the matters of other magistrates to aid oppressed citizens. Like I said, these were incredible new political powers he was given. 
Oh wait, there's more. On top of the powers of a tribune, Augustus was also given the powers of a censor in Rome. This meant that on top of being in charge of laws, he was also now in charge of the morals of Rome. The censor's job was to oversee public morals as well as ensure that laws being made were in line with the morals of the Republic, well, a principate slowly turning into an empire. And the last bit of powers he was given as censor were to hold a census and decide who was allowed to join the Senate. Using this newfound censor power, Augustus made it illegal to wear anything besides a toga when you were in the Forum of Rome. Yeah, kinda weird, but it was Rome, what are you gonna do? This was supposed to invoke a sense of patriotism in the city. Also, as a side note, Augustus was never actually elected as tribune or censor, as was usually done. No, he was just given these powers. Technically it was for a year, but both sets of power were auto-renewed at the start of each year because, well, it's Augustus. But hey, would you believe that's not all the power Augustus would get? He was given two more political powers in the forms of imperiums, meaning absolute control mostly in a military sense. The first was the Imperium Proconsulare Maius, which means power over all the proconsuls. The proconsul was the Roman term for a governor of a province. With this power, Augustus had absolute control over all the territory that had been given to him by the Senate. It also meant he could legally interfere in the affairs of the provinces under the control of the Senate if he thought it was necessary. Also for some reason this now meant that Augustus was the only one in Rome who could receive a military triumph. The only other person who received one during Augustus' reign was Tiberius, Livia's older son and the second emperor of Rome. The second form of imperium was granted to the princeps over the city of Rome itself meaning Augustus commanded every soldier in the capital. The entirety of the legions in Rome were usually controlled by several individuals, never just one. But Augustus was Augustus, so now it was just one dude with complete military control over one of the largest empires in the world. Caesar Augustus at this point is basically the most powerful man in Europe, and everyone seems to be okay with that. But are they really? What did the average Gaius on the streets of Rome think of their quickly crumbling republic? In all honesty, the plebeians were ecstatic about this Augustus fella. Julius Caesar had been a champion for the masses, and Augustus was the legal son and successor of the deified dictator. In fact, when Augustus refused to run for consul in 22 BCE, the people of Rome revolted in a fury because their hero would no longer be in charge. Then they rioted again in 21 BCE, and 19 BCE. So 20 BCE must have just been a very good year or something. Each time the people revolted, they demanded that only one consul was to be elected in the hopes that Augustus would take the other seat, but he never did. Also in 22 BCE, there was a shortage of grain that sparked a national crisis. The public cried out for the Senate to make Augustus dictator in order to oversee the Principate through the crisis. However, Augustus made a show of publicly refusing the dictatorship offering a great callback to Julius Caesar refusing the crown of a king. 
After the crisis persisted and the public's demands grew louder, Augustus accepted even more power of controlling Rome's grain supplies. This wasn't as dictator, but now just part of his many, many new political powers. And almost as soon as Augustus was put in charge, the problem was solved. This has led many people to suggest that Augustus actually created the problem in the first place in order to gain this new power. That may seem wild, but being the man who controlled grain distribution was actually a very important job in ancient Rome. It was a position Pompey the Great held when he was a rising star. Now, we can't prove that Augustus actually started the grain crisis, but the guy was already gaining new powers like Thanos with Infinity Stones. Why not just get the whole set? Okay, we're gonna round out this episode with some more buildup of Augustus's powers and dynasty crafting. With Augustus still not in the best of health, he had been around 40 years old during his massive health scare and would still suffer health problems for the rest of his life, it was only natural that the princeps of Rome would start setting things up for the event that something actually happened to him, such as illness or assassination. One of Augustus's friends and advisors, a man named Gaius Maecenas, suggested that Augustus bring Agrippa even more so into the fold. Augustus had already made the military general his second-in-command and essentially heir, but he could do better than that. When Augustus was given his imperium over the Principate, Agrippa was also granted proconsular imperium, the power to command legions in basically every province, for five years. This was the closest Augustus actually got to making Agrippa his co-ruler. On top of that, it wasn't just enough to be close friends. Why not actually get the guy into the family as well? Julia was a widow after Livia possibly poisoned her husband, so she would need a husband, I guess. In 19 BCE, Augustus pulled the classic, hey man, divorce your wife strategy on Agrippa and let him marry Julia. By the way, Agrippa at this point is 44 years old and Julia is 20. Now, Agrippa is fully situated to be a quick transfer in if Augustus were to kick the bucket. The couple ended up having five children together, including Agrippina the Elder, the mother of Emperor Caligula and the grandmother of Emperor Nero. The Julio-Claudian future was more or less secure at this point. Augustus had power over the state, he had power over the military, he even had power over food supplies. But there was one thing missing from his gauntlet of Roman powers. Religious authority. The most powerful religious position in Rome was the Pontifex Maximus. Unlike other positions in Rome, such as consuls, tribunes, and proconsuls, most religious positions, Pontifex Maximus included, were held for life. Well, throughout all this time, there had been a Pontifex Maximus, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. Lepidus had once been one of Augustus's most trusted allies and a fellow member of the Second Triumvirate until he fell out of favor. Lepidus had taken the position of Pontifex Maximus after the death of Julius Caesar, the previous pontiff. Augustus wasn't going to kill his old friend. The guy was already in exile. Luckily for Augustus, Lepidus died in 12 BCE, and the emperor quickly stepped in to pick up the title. At the age of 51, after about 15 years of gathering power, Augustus had all the power in Rome. 
Most historians say that his reign as emperor began in 27 BCE when Augustus took his first consulship after beating Mark Antony, but I'd say that period of time was only the build-up. After Augustus, every Roman emperor would gain the powers Augustus had amassed between 27 to 12 BCE. Now, as religious leader of the nation, Augustus was truly the one and only Imperator of Rome. Despite all of his power grabs and very much becoming a monarch in his own right, Augustus never actually stylized himself as an emperor. He was always princeps, the first citizen of Rome. In fact, Augustus, at least publicly, remained relatively humble about his position within the collapsing republic. Just before his death, Augustus wrote the Res Geste Divi Augusti, which translates to the Deeds of the Divine Augustus. The Res Geste was more or less an autobiography detailing the achievements of the first emperor. When writing about the period we covered this episode, he constantly makes it seem like people actually wanted him to be a monarch. For the events of 22 BCE, after his death scare, Augustus wrote, Dictatorship was offered, but I refused, and perpetual consulship was offered, but I refused. Roman historian Suetonius wrote that Augustus thought several times about fully restoring the Republic, but goes on to write, Reflecting, however, that as he himself would not be free from danger if he should retire, so too would it be hazardous to trust the state to the control of more than one. He continued to keep it in his hands. And to top off this current chapter of the story, in 2 BCE, the citizens of Rome gave Augustus the title Pater Patriae, Father of the Nation. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going on a long journey around the world as we cover the story of Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan as he attempts to circumnavigate the globe. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.